Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32, and we are going to look at this morning 32 and 33. This is a, an important event. These chapters list an important event in Jacob's life, perhaps the most important event, not just up to date, but in all of Genesis. It is a transformative event for him. And oddly enough, it is a, the, the event, the part of this, these chapters where God is most at work with Jacob is in a wrestling match. I don't know what you think of when you think of wrestling. Perhaps it is that Olympic type wrestling, which I know we are once again, our country is gearing up for, but I typically don't think of Olympic wrestling when I think of wrestling. Perhaps I know some in our church family, uh, they think of sumo wrestling. That's probably rare for most of us. Uh, but the thing that I think of when I think of wrestling is wrestling, you know? It, it, is, it, it, it is men who have way too many muscles wearing like yoga pants and like sequined and bright and shiny who are like tossing each other about in a ring, you know, hitting each other with a chair. That is not what is happening clearly in our text today. And the prize for sumo wrestling is a, a package. Each match, they will give them a, uh, a package of envelopes, each envelope filled with cash. For Olympic wrestling, you get a medal, hopefully a gold medal. In wrestling, you just get a a large belt that apparently none of them ever wear. But here what we find is Jacob is wrestling with God. And really, it is God that picks a fight with Jacob. And the aim of Jacob is favor with God. Jacob is seeking God's favor. You can imagine, he has been fighting his entire life. This is Jacob has been fighting for his entire life for God's blessing. To attain God's promises. I mean, God had made incredible promises to Abraham. Do you remember that back in Genesis chapter 12? The promise of a seed that through Abraham would come a nation, descendants. And that Abraham would enjoy God's particular blessing. And that Abraham, through Abraham, the world would be a blessing. He would be a blessing to others and his descendants and those after him would be a blessing to those around him. And God ultimately promised Abraham a place. That place was the land of Canaan. And these promises were passed on to Isaac, from Abraham to Isaac. And from Isaac to Jacob. Despite the fact that Esau was the older son and traditionally would have gotten these promises, inherited inherited these benefits, these blessings for himself, it is Jacob who receives them from God. But Jacob, rather than entrusting it over to the Lord, he cons his way to receive it. Deceiving his brother... Deceiving his blind dad with help from his mom. And as a result, Jacob goes on the run. Which is why this this text has Jacob returning to the promised land. But Jacob leaves because his brother is 
set on murderous revenge for what Jacob has done in stealing all of God's blessing. Jacob, finding himself living with his uncle, once again reverts back to this process where he is fighting, wrestling, striving with man to attain the blessings of God. Seeking his own prosperity, his own wealth, and now he has returned. And God has protected him. We saw that last week. God protected him from Laban's outrage and anger. But now he finds himself in Genesis chapter 32 and 33 in a situation for which he has no answer. And he is desperate. He is now, we find, having returned from far north and east, he is returning to the land of promise. And the geography of our text tells us that he is in the land of Seir, the the, the region of Moab, which is right across the Jordan River. The latter half of Genesis chapter 32 will tell us that he is by this river, Jabbok. And the Jabbok empties into the Jordan River. It carves its way through this mountainous area and empties into the Jordan River. And it's, it's almost as if Jacob, right here, can see he is, he is waiting to cross over into to the promised land. Waiting, hoping to get there so close. But in the face of, well, once his brother hears of his return, his brother Esau comes, and he does not come, at least it does not seem, peacefully. So Jacob panics. So before we jump into our text this morning, would you join me in prayer that God may bless us as we study his word. Father, your word is is a lamp. And we pray that today we will, by your grace, through your spirit, have our eyes opened so that we may see the light that is laid before us. That we may live in light of your word. That we may have hope. That we might taste of your blessings in Christ Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. We see that Jacob is returning on his way home. He returns to this, to this region. And we see in verses 1 to 2 that he receives an angelic welcome. So Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. We don't know if Jacob is seeing them in a vision or if he is seeing them in, in a dream. We're not sure what the situation is. But in some way, Jesus, uh, Jacob sees these angels And when Jacob saw them, verse 2, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim, which means two camps. You have the camp of God and his own camp. And you can, you remember as Jacob was leaving the promised land, you remember what happened as he is leaving. He is at Bethel sleeping and God visits him. He sees the angels. They visit him there. That ladder and at the top of the ladder is the living God. And now as Jacob is returning to the land of promise, he once again meets 
angels. And it's almost as if whether he's leaving or whether he's going, he is meeting angels. It's almost as if there are angels guarding the place of God. As if there, you will recall Genesis chapter 3 where we are told that there are angels who are guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden. And he sees these angels and he renames that place Mahanaim two camps. And Jacob is a, he is a, a, he's a good worker. He is an initiator. He always takes the initiative whenever there's a challenge or a problem. It's a good quality about him. And you'll see in verses three to five that as he is returning home, he, rather than waiting for Esau to find out that he is now back in the area, he makes first contact. He reaches out to Esau. And he sends messengers. And Jacob sent messengers, verse 3, before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen and donkeys, flocks and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. Jacob is hoping to have favor in his sight. You've got to note that word because that word is going to come up again and again in Genesis 32 and 33. Jacob is longing for the approval of his brother, for the welcome of his brother. Jacob wants to make sure that his brother doesn't reach out to him with that murderous intent. He's checking to see, he's checking the temperature of the water. The way you might check the temperature of the home. You're coming home, not sure how things are. Hey, honey, I'm home. Waiting for that first response. How are the kids? Were they good? Were they terrible? How is work? What's going on? Jacob is sending out messengers. He's, he's testing the waters here. And you can sense that. He, he writes, or he, he has these messengers address Esau as, My Lord. And he's seeking his, his approval. And he's telling him what he has. He, he is clearly taking a subservient role here. And then in verse 6, the messengers return, and it's not with good news. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. This doesn't sound like a welcome party. This sounds like a war party. You remember, Abraham took 318 men and he went out and fought a, 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 an army with it. Here, Jacob learns that his brother is, is returning. He's coming, but he's coming with, with 400 men. And there's no other news. Is this good? Is this bad? Nothing. Esau gives him no message in return. And so Jacob begins to panic. And he begins, but not panic so that he is paralyzed. He responds to the situation first with wisdom. And you'll see that in in how he divides up his family. Verse 7 and 8. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him, and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. So do you see what he's doing here? 
He's not putting all of his, his eggs in one basket. He is saying, all right, let's split the family. Let's split everything in half. We don't know which one Esau is going to attack first. But if he does come with murderous intent, perhaps that second camp, he will think it's a different camp altogether. He won't know that they're connected. Perhaps they will, he'll be so consumed with, with beating and destroying this camp that he won't notice the second camp escaping. So he, he splits his forces, knowing that he has no hope to beat such a force. And then we see Jacob doing what he has up to this point not done at all. He prays. He prays. This is the first prayer that Jacob gives. More than that, this is the longest prayer in the book of Genesis. I want you to notice what Jacob will do is he is going to remind God both of his promises And of his commands. That he is only here because God has called him to be here. But you'll also notice Jacob's attitude. Up to now, he has been this arrogant, self-serving, self-reliant jerk. Confident in his own ability to do whatever he wants to do. But now... In the face of a force which he has no hope to deliver himself, Jacob is finally humbled. Read with me, verses 9 to 12. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, still not his Lord yet. The Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children, mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. For the first time in Jacob's life, he is recognizing that God has been nothing but merciful to him. Up to now, in every situation when he has explained himself, He has always footnoted his own hard work. He has always worked every situation, worked the angles, worked the people, manipulating everything. For the first time, there is this humble recognition that he, what he has, has been given to him by God and that he is unworthy of it. That's an important point. That's an important point. And he pleads for God to show him mercy. But he yet doesn't quite trust God completely. He's still, he's trusting God in part. He prays to God. He offers up this prayer. He's begging, pleading for God's assistance. Reminding him of his promise. Reminding him that he told him to come back. What we're going to see is that Jacob, the very next thing he does is he, 
He goes to, to manipulate once again. And his goal, we're going to find out, we're going to see in just a moment, is to buy his brother's favor. He's not leaving it all with God. Uh Uh-uh. He is going to do, once again, whatever he can to make sure the situation turns out for his own advantage. So verse 13, we begin to see this sense of self-preservation, self-reliance to accomplish his own purposes. So he lodged, this is Jacob, so he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand. So he takes whatever he has as a present for Esau, his brother. And here, I want you to understand what we're going to list may not sound like very much, but 550 animals in total, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth in today's market uh, of, of livestock. This was a gift worthy of a king. So he gives him 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes or female lambs, 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants and every drove by itself and said to the servants, pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you, and asks, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, he is also behind us. So he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the droves, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him. There's that fascinating word. I will appease him. This same word is where we get our our word of atone. I will will propitiate. I will propitiate his wrath. I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. So what we have here is Jacob on one side of the Jabbok River, which flows. And south of him, you've got Esau coming with his 400 men. And so he sends gift after gift, herd after herd herd across, waiting for a, a proper interval in between. And what he's trying to do very clearly is soften his brother so that by the time his brother gets to him, He'll be overwhelmed with the gifts that Jacob is giving him and he will have earned or worked or bought, really, his favor. Jacob doesn't end there. Not only is he still scheming with his flocks and herds, he begins to scheme with his own family. And here we begin to see Jacob's cowardice. Look with me at verse 22. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Beginning of Genesis 32, 24, then he was left alone. What we have him doing is him deciding that that's not enough. And so he takes his family, and just as Abraham before him had lied about Sarah being his 
sister, when she is his wife, using her as a shield, Jacob now uses his family as a human shield. He sends them ahead of himself. In the, in the dead of night, under cover of darkness, they, he sends them across to make this dangerous crossing at this, at this ford so that he is left alone behind at the rear. This is, this is sheer cowardice. But it is here that God meets him. And it is here that God confronts him. All of Jacob's self-reliance has brought him to this point. Alone. Up to now, every problem that Jacob has faced, he has faced with his own wisdom, his own work ethic, his own ability to manipulate the situation. If I work hard enough, if I can manipulate these people, deceive them, whatever it may be, I can solve this problem. And it has led him here. And now he is trying desperately to buy his brother off. And if that doesn't work, his family will be a human shield. So possibly, maybe he can hide and escape. And just like us, Jacob prays and immediately goes back to failing to trust God. And what we see God doing next is a little difficult for us to understand. And why would God wrestle Jacob. Of all the things he could do, why would he get into a physical wrestling match with him? It, it, it confuses, it, it boggles our minds. I want us to see that it's almost as if God has, he, he has watched Jacob wrestle with everything and everyone in the way that he knows he is going to win Jacob to himself is by wrestling with him. What we see is the the condescension of God who lowers himself to win us how we need to be won. So Jacob, read with me verse 24. Jacob was left alone. And a man, a mystery man, Jacob doesn't know. He is, under, he is alone in the, under the cover of darkness and he is approached. How this wrestling match begins, we don't know. But very clearly, this person comes and that the intentions are clear. He is instigating a fight. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he, this is the Lord, said, let me go for the day breaks. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. The Lord said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. 
Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. What we have here is this unusual wrestling match. Jacob is approached by this man who instantly begins, immediately begins to wrestle with him, fight with him. And it's not clear that Jacob knows who this person is immediately. But it does begin to dawn on him that this person is superior to him, is greater than him. Because when this person asks, let me go, Jacob responds, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And even before then, that that clue, it is not that God can't shake Jacob loose. He has started a fight, but now he can't finish it. Because we see the power of God who, with just a touch, dislocates Jacob's hip. The, the, the pain that Jacob must have felt at that moment is incredible, yet he continues to, to cling to God. And Jacob will not give up. By the end, as, as dawn is beginning to break, he must be tired, weak, helpless because of the dislocated hip. But he still will not let God go. All he can do at this point, he's no longer wrestling He is only clinging. He is only clinging. He is only grasping. And then God asks him, what is your name? What an odd question to ask someone in the middle of a fight. Does God not know who he's come and and picked a fight with? What's happening here? And Jacob's name, for him to admit it, it, it's humiliating. You remember what his name means. It means deceiver, trickster, heel grabber. And Jacob's whole life has been about him grasping and deceiving and tricking others. From the very beginning in the womb, he comes out grabbing his brother's heel and trying to trip him up his entire life. Only to be sent off and even with Laban trying to get ahead, trying to advance through his own schemes. By asking Jacob what his name is, God is asking, who are you? And Jacob, powerless, helpless, clinging to God, he confesses, I am Jacob. I am a sinner. Not just I have sinned, but I am a deceiver. I am a trickster. I am these things. I am a sinner. And do you see what God does next? He transforms him. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. The very name Israel means God fights or the one who fights or strives with God. And Jacob has strived. He has prevailed. He has succeeded. His whole life has been about fighting and striving with men. You remember back in early in Jacob's life while he was still in the womb, his mother 
Rebecca goes and he finds from the prophet what is happening within me. There is turmoil within. It's like the boys are fighting. He fought with his brother. He fought with his father for the blessing. He fought with Laban. Now he fights with God and he wins with God. Not by being deceitful. Not by trying to work so as to please God. Not so by being cunning or to do so much that it will compel God to bless him. No, he wins with God by simply clinging to him helplessly. In verse 11, Jacob pleaded with God to deliver him, to rescue him from Esau. And in verse 30, Jacob renames the place where he is encountered with God because he has has seen God face to face and his life has been preserved. It has been delivered. And Jacob walks away, limps away, really, a new man. And and Moses gives us that little editorial at the end of chapter 32. He, he, he's explaining, you'll remember, he's writing to the people of Israel before they enter the promised land. So this, he is explaining to them why they have this tradition of not eating from this hip socket. He's explaining what, why they do what they do. But Jacob walks away a new man, one who has fought with God and won. Won by simple, humble faith. What we see in the rest of chapter 33 is that Jacob is a changed man. I'm going to read quickly through the chapter. It is not terribly long, only 20 verses. We do not have time to delve into every part. We're just going to highlight a few of the ways that Jacob shows us that he is changed. Now Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and there Esau was coming and with him 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maidservants and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind and Rachel and Joseph last. All right, so Jacob is trusting the Lord, but that does not mean he is trusting God perfectly. He is still organizing by his priorities and he's got the, the, his children and their, their mother by the, hand, by the handmaidens of his wives. They are first, which shows that they are lowest of lowest in, in, on priority of Jacob. Then you've got Leah and then you've got Rachel and Joseph and, and that is going to create hostility for the rest of Joseph's life. So he's not perfect. But we do see boldness here in verse 3. Then he, this is Jacob, crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. No longer is he hiding behind his family. He goes to the front. Here is a man who is at first meeting the problem head on, leaning heavily and only on the grace of God. Verse 4 Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, who are these with you? And Esau has this surprising change of heart that the Lord has worked in him. And Jacob responds, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. And the maidservants came near, they and their children, and they bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. 
Then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I met? He's referring to all of those animals that were sent ahead. Jacob responds, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And what was initially intended as a means to buy Esau's favor, favor now is transformed. Verse 10. And Jacob said, no, please. If I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand. Inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God and you were pleased with me, please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. Now, instead of trying to win Esau's favor, favor, now Jacob is seeking merely to be a blessing. To fulfill that which God had told Abraham. Through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Jacob is blessing Esau. But though they have reconciled. That does not mean that Jacob entirely entrusts himself to Esau. Esau makes an offer that Jacob will politely refuse. Verse 12. And Esau said, let us take our journey, let us go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord Lord knows that the children are weak, and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard, one day all the flock will die. Please, I pray, Lord, uh, please let my Lord go on ahead ahead of his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to, the, to my Lord in Seir. And Esau said, now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth, which means booths. And Succoth is, is the opposite way from, uh, from the land of Seir, where Esau is made his home. Uh, Succoth is right there on the border uh, of the river Jordan, right before you would cross over and enter into the land of Canaan. But that's only his, Succoth is only a temporary place. Verse 18, then Jacob came safely, just as God promised, to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Israel. Do you not see what Jacob is doing here? On one side, he is unwilling to go with his brother thing to be reconciled. It's an entirely different thing to live in close proximity. And Jacob isn't quite certain he trusts his brother or his brother's uh, intentions. You see that with Esau. Uh, let me accompany you. Jacob refuses. Why don't I leave an armed guard with you? Well, that certainly makes Jacob nervous. No thank you. 
we are good on our own. But there's something else going there. How can Jacob claim to trust God if he is accepting protection from Esau? How can he say, the Lord will lead me safely, he has, just as he has promised, if he is re- now relying on Esau's protection? So he refuses. And he comes there in verse 18, back into the land of Canaan, the land that he had left so many years before. He returns, and the first thing he does is he buys a piece of property. The very next thing he does is he worships the Lord, building an altar and calling that altar El Elohe Israel, the God, the God of Israel, God, the God who strives. The worship of Jacob becomes a burning testimony to all the peoples around him that those who strive with God can win this blessing if they will trust in him. Now here in this chapter, these two chapters, we see the character of God. I mean, God protects. He protects those who come to him. God answers the prayer of his servant. He deals graciously with us who are unworthy. He condescends to come to us in the way that we need him. The psalmist will tell us that the Lord knows that we, he knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. This is how God loves us graciously, mercifully. This is how God shows us his love, not just here, but we see this fast forward thousands of years until we approach the, 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 the work of Christ, who on the cross is condemned for us. Friends, we can be sure that we, if we do not find salvation in Jesus, we will not find it anywhere else. For that is the place where God has wrestled with us. And do you not see how God transforms Jacob? He's not made perfect or sinless, but he is made bold in his faith. He is made confident in God. He is now transformed from one who relies on himself, who is ready to footnote and recount his own strength, his own power, his own schemes, to one who worships. Friends, all of God's works in our lives, none is greater than the transformative power of of God who works in our hearts. And you will remember Moses as he's writing this, he's writing this to the people of Israel before they enter the promised land. You remember what has happened to the people of Israel as soon as they came out of the land of Egypt. They get to the edge of the promised land. God tells them to enter in. They send in those 12 spies, one from each tribe, Ten return with bad news. We can't take the land. Two respond. God will give it to us. He has promised us. And who is it that Israel, the nation, believes? It is the ten spies rather than the two faithful ones. And what is the response? They, because they turn away, they are condemned to wander in the, in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation passes away. 
And now, as another generation has arisen, and they are now in the same region, ready to cross the, the Jordan River, where Jacob himself once was. They read this and are reminded that God will protect them. Not because they are mighty, not because they have all the the armies that they will need, because God will fight. He will fight for them. God fights for his people. He fights for those who cling to him in faith. Friend, you and I need this text. You saw in chapter 32, verse 7, where Jacob's response to his predicament is great fear and distress. You know, we face situations every day, every week, every year that cause us distress and fear. Anxious for our health. Anxious for our kids. Not only for their health, but for their development. Anxious for their work at school. Anxious for their maturity. Anxious for their future. Desire for them to, to trust in Christ. Desire for them to obey Christ. To find Christ their joy. We're stressed about work about possible changes to our job or a fact that that nothing changes with our job. We're distressed about the fact that we have too many hours or not enough hours and we're not sure if, if, if there will be work coming forward. Things are slowing down. Will there be layoffs? Worried about the way our bosses treat us, what they expect of us, the fact that they don't listen. The fact that that coworker who makes life difficult, always throwing you under the bus, always with their work, with their poor work, making you look bad. Kids, you at school, distressed not just about grades and schoolwork, distressed about how other kids treat you, what they say about you, the names that they may call you, Do you not see how God gives Jacob a new name? Can we not trust him for these things? And we are shown what trust looks like. Trust doesn't look like doing nothing, Jacob. Divides his family up, comes up with a plan to to do what may seem best. But ultimately, faith clings to God in hope. Faith is emptied of self-reliance and self-dependence. Faith humbly turns and trusts in God. More than that, faith fights. Faith strives. It fights. It wars. Faith is not a passive thing that we exert. It is something that we must fight for in the moment. This is not just what we find here in Genesis 32 and 33. 
We see this echoed again and again throughout the scriptures. Christ reminds us in Luke 13, 24, telling us, strive, that's fight, to enter through the narrow door. What are we entering? It is heaven itself. It is salvation itself. For many, he says, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. The author of Hebrews, speaking of the promised rest of God, he writes, let us strive to enter that rest. In 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul commends us saying, fight the good fight of faith. Those who trust God, trust Him through fighting. We fight to cling to God in hope on Him. We fight against temptation of sin. We fight against the anger that so easily rises within our hearts when things are not what we want them to be. We war day by day against fear and anxiety. Against the desire for others to see us for the applause of men. We fight lust. We fight greed. We fight hopelessness by clinging to Christ and his promises. We fight For heaven itself. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us not lose our fight. Let us continue to fight the good fight of faith. Not through our own power. Not not by our own works. But by clinging to God. And what he has promised us. In Christ Jesus. Let us strive. Let us cling to God above. Let's pray. Our Father, we are prone to laziness, to procrastination, to passivity. When you call us to be active, when you call us to fight, when you call us to cling in self-dependence on you, oh God, we pray by your Spirit that you will grant us this dependence on you this week. Father, we pray for those in our, in our church today who have never, as of yet, given up dependence on themselves, who are still working for your favor, scheming for your favor. Oh God, cause them to be humbled and to cling to you in faith alone. 
And Father, would you strengthen us that we together may fight. Fight for heaven. Fighting against sin and temptation. That we may glory and rejoice in all of your promises that you have made and guaranteed and now assure us in Christ Jesus. We come to you in him and through him alone, our Savior Jesus. Amen.